This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, thank you, Tim, and thank you to uh, Carta for their vision in sponsoring these wonderful symposia. Um, I want to start with one picture here, which is a picture of what was intended to uh, inculcate into the readers of this magazine, Time magazine, that uh, DNA did everything that you uh, would want in a car. And unfortunately for this ad, of course, Volvo was taken over by Ford. So um, there's been a cultural change since this ad came out. We don't know yet what that cultural change actually will bring about. It hasn't been long enough. But the general problem that we face is um, how important are the genes relative to the other things that go on in the human life? Um, and what I'm going to do is to start quite a bit of time ago with a picture that tells you about what uh, my colleague Cavalli Sforza, who just died four weeks ago, and I called the serial founder effect of people leaving Africa between 50 and 100,000 years ago. And what you see here are the people who are the most variable. They have the most variation in terms of colors and genes. And when they leave Africa, a small number of those individuals uh, approach this area here, probably the Levant, and then they diverge into groups that go to Africa and Asia. Some go down into the oceanic area. And the final group to move moves across this Bering Bridge here into the Americas. And you can see the pattern of variation here is much less variable than here. Now, econo some economists, and I'm referring to these particular ones, think that there's something else going on and that they claim that the pattern of human variation has been associated with economic development. And they did it by doing the following picture, which is um, this famous, infamous paper by Ashraf and Galore, where if you look at this graph here, which is the essentially population density in the year 1500, which the economist chose, and this is a pattern of uh, lack of genetic variation. So the people who lack most of the absent variation or the people who are the most variable are the Africans and the people who are the least variable are the indigenous Americans. And they concluded that having an intermediate amount of variation was conducive to economic development. And this is just one population density was just one of the silly things that they did. But the idea behind bringing this to your attention is that this is published in the most eminent economic journal in America, in the world, in fact. And uh, not only is it silly, but it's wrong. Uh, they claim that a one percentage point decrease in diversity 
for the most diverse society would be associated with a rise in its population density by 64%. So this kind of misuse of numbers, not, not only was it in that paper, but it also was brought over into another paper they wrote about cultural fragmentation. And uh, trying to point out that genetic diversity actually is a cause of these social phenomena. Um, not only were they uh, silly, but they were wrong, and there were a series of papers published shortly after this one came out that addressed that their population estimates were wrong, their time of uh, getting agriculture was wrong, whether there was cooperation in the societies they were looking at was wrong, and of course, how much genetic diversity was related to uh, innovation was wrong too, because fruit flies have a lot more genetic diversity than humans. Their innovation is not nearly as great, as far as we know. <laughs> so in the Human Genome Diversity Cell Line Panel, which Luca Cavalli-Sforza and I started to develop in the early 1990s, we looked at ge genomic variation in people from around the world 52 populations, and where they're uh, located is this marked with these red X's here. And those uh, peoples, uh, we would love to have a lot more in the human genome diversity cell line. And people now have in their laboratories hundreds of populations from around the world where the DNA is uh, currently available for analysis. Our idea was to have this panel available in Paris and any lab in the world could just get the DNAs and do their studies. And this was uh, the first study that we did on those people in that study. These are uh, indigenous Americans, these are indigenous Africans, and these are Europeans. But the interesting thing about this slide is how many of these populations around the world have ancestry in more than one place including these people who have ancestry in three places. And the Uyghurs in China have ancestry in three places. And the Hazara in uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan have ancestry in three different continents. So ancestry is a much better idea about describing populations than is race. Now, if we go back to that silly economic slide, when you look at the data that we've uh, produced from that study, they were using my data. That's what made me so mad. And this, <laughs> this, this was the data, th these were the data they were using. Um, we plotted mean uh, diversity as a function of distance from Addis Ababa. And what you can see here is that the Africans have the highest diversity and the indigenous Americans have the lowest diversity. And we can ask why. Well, I showed you why in that migration trait. It was a property of uh, prehistorical migrations, that the African population was the population from which everybody else was devised, derived. They have the most variation. They've been there the longest, accumulated the most mutations. And the indigenous Americans have been in their small group that came across from the Bering Bridge. That group's only been there in position for 15,000 years as opposed to the 100,000 years before the, American, the indigenous Africans left. 
Now, to prove that, we looked at the DNA of these peoples around the world to find out how long the stretches of DNA without any variation should be there. And what we see is that there are two kinds of reasons why people have lack variation. One is the historical phenomenon that I told you about of small population size, that these are the indigenous American people. And the other one is a cultural phenomenon, and these are all the Islamic populations in our study. And they have the same level of homozygosity or lack of variation that, as the indigenous Americans. And the reason is these populations practice first cousin marriages. These are highly inbred populations from Pakistan, Afghanistan, and the Middle East. So the cultural explanation is the explanation for this part, and the historical explanation is the explanation for that part. That's the demography side. Now, since that study, there's been 189 populations studied. And I'll ask you to focus on this list. Um, what we see here are the indigenous Americans, and what we're looking at here is having five million nucleotides without any variation. And you see mostly that the populations in the Americas have a very high rate of homozygosity. The uh, populations of Islamic extraction have a very high rate of homozygosity. And these populations here are really interesting. These are the Jewish populations. And one of those populations particularly interesting, this one here, that's a population in Israel called the Samaritans. And most of you have heard of the Samaritans because there was a good one. <laughs> now, the Samaritans are an interesting group because they don't believe that they should be separated from the other Israelites. They have a very interesting history. This is the high priest of the Samaritans currently. There are about 850 of them half live in the center of Tel Aviv and half live in a, a village in the West Bank. But in 1917, there were 150 Samaritans left. They spoke Aramaic and they uh, did not believe in any of the Bible except the five books of Moses. The rest of it, the prophets and the writings, they didn't care about. And part of the reason is their history this is the Assyrian Empire between 900 and 607 BC. And this is the history. Everybody can read this for themselves. This is uh, <laughs> called the Nimrud Prism, in which Emperor Sargon II, who conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in the year 722 BC, wrote down what he did. And this is the story. Now, if you want an easier bit, you can read the translation here that, that uh, he tells that he took out the people, as was his custom, from the northern kingdom, moved them to what is now Iraq, and replaced them with people who he already had conquered. And this was his pattern. However, the Samaritans believe that they descend from people who never left that they are the descendants of the children of Manasseh and Ephraim, two of the children of Joseph, two sons of Joseph, and they never left. Now, the Bible actually has a contradiction about these people because if you look at the book of Kings, it says exactly what the Nimrud prism says. 
that he took the king of Assyria, brought men from Babylon and these other places, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. Unfortunately, the Chronicle says exactly something else, because Hezekiah is the king of the Solomonic Empire, and this is in the year uh, 700. This is after the conquest. So if the Israelites had been taken over and left and there were none there, why would he be writing to Israel and Judah and the children of Ephraim and Manasseh and asking them to come to Jerusalem to keep the Passover? So there's a contradiction there. And the scholars say, oh, Chronicles is written a lot longer after. It goes to about 400 BC, and the Book of Kings is really kosher. We've got to believe that one. So um, either way, there's something to explain here, and so we tried to explain it. Um, Samaritans, being a Samaritan is passed down along the male line. Male Samaritans can marry anybody, and the children is a Samaritan. There are only four families, Cohen, Yoshua, Marchiv, Danfi, and Tzedakah, and they are endogamous. They marry within the line. So it's not unexpected that they have the highest inbreeding coefficient of any population in the world. They have, they're the only population I know of where a quarter of the mothers and sisters of colorblind men are also colorblind, because as you know, colorblindness is usually in males. So the Samaritans are really quite interesting, but as a consequence of this cultural phenomenon of preferring to marry within the line, within the marriage line, they have these genetic properties which we can get at by looking at the Y chromosome because the descending gene which defines you as a Samaritan is your Y chromosome because only males can pass being a Samaritan down. So we did that. We looked at the Y chromosomes of the Samaritans and compared them to all the other populations of Jewish people in Israel and in addition to Palestinian and to Ethiopian Jews and to Druze and Bedouin. And lo and behold, they're the closest by far to today's Kohens. And Kohens are the high priests of the Jewish religion. So it turns out that the Samaritans are actually related, closer to the Jewish people, and they're Israelites. They must be Israelites to have this close relationship on the Y chromosome. If you study mitochondrial DNA, it's a totally different story because the women are coming from everywhere. They're not from Samaritans. So you won't see anything like this, which we did which is an interesting phenomenon. So the the culture has again defined the pattern of genomic variation. Why did this happen? Well, this guy, Josephus, an interesting fellow who was hated by the Jews at the time because he was a turncoat. He joined the Romans and became a writer and reporter for the Romans and the Romans who were in Israel and destroying the temple and particularly attached himself to Vespasian who destroyed the temple in the year 70. And he writes about a time of history, 300 or 400 years before him, and he mentions Sanballatis, who is that Persian governor of Samaria and Judea, and Manassas, who was the brother of the high priest in Jerusalem. Now, he'd have to be a Cohen, because only Cohens were high priests. And 
Josephus says that Sanbalites gave Manassas his daughter, and along with other of the high priests, they converted to become essentially Jewish, Samaritan. So they were Cohen's. So the male lineage descends, in court, according to Josephus, from that line. So we don't know whether there's any truth to this. This is the only evidence that, my, that I and my religious scholars have been able to find to say why the Samaritans should be related to the Cohen's, the high priests of the Jewish religion. Now, my final example of how culture affects genes concerns the Canadian fur trade and tuberculosis. This is a pattern of the global incidence of tuberculosis rates from the United Nations documents. It hasn't changed much since then, maybe gotten a little worse down here in Africa, southern Africa with the advent of HIV. Um, this is a story from the famous book written by Ferguson in 1928 about how many deaths occurred from TB in indigenous American po uh, Canadian populations. And these two peaks, which tell you over 10%, maybe 14% of indigenous Americans in Canada died in those times. They died because they were put into reservations. And the reservations were extremely badly uh, designed. The people were dying like flies of infectious diseases. They had no blankets, no ventilation. So the question is, if these people had that problem, then why is it the case that so many Indigenous Americans in that part of Canada died? This lady who's pictured here in the canoe of the fur traders going down this long river here, this river zone here, from Quebec, we found out that if we actually looked at the DNA of the bacterium that was in the Canadian indigenous peoples, it was exactly the same DNA that was in the people from Quebec. Those people, the French Canadians, were in the Northwest Fur Trading Company, and the French had a different culture from the British. The French cohabited with the indigenous people and they passed on their TB bacterium. The British never homesteaded. They never passed on anything. They, did, they were hands off, the indigenous people. So what we see is this culture of cohabiting with the indigenous people that the French uh, Canadian fur trappers did was the reason why that bacterium passed these 1,500 kilometers into the indigenous people. So in conclusion, it's a it's obvious that if you look at the cultural uh, context around these human behaviours and the variation of the DNA, you can see that you can't say that it's the DNA that's causing these variations. Thank you. So I have something that predates the stone. <laughs> these are palm nuts. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm pleased to be here to speak to you at this CARTA event, and I thank Dr. White and Dr. Churchland for the invitation. Like you, I'm passionately interested in the human mind and human behavior, and my particular interests are in what humans share with other species and how they are different. Understanding humans as members of the natural world is critical to understanding human origins and our future. 
let's start with how humans use hand tools. Now, humans use hand tools like these now, and how our ancestors used them in the deep past. We can see some continuities. We can use chopper cores too, even though we might not be able to manufacture a chopper core like this one without practice. What about non-human primates? Jane Goodall gave compelling reports of wild chimpanzees fishing for termites with grass stems, prompting Louis Leakey's famous quote, now we must redefine tool, redefine man, or accept chimpanzees as humans. (laughs) But the idea that scientists in the mid-20th century were unaware of non-human primates naturally using tools is inaccurate. Darwin, citing a report published more than 100 years before Jane Goodall's report, mentioned wild chimpanzees cracking nuts with stones in his book, The Descent of Man. Goodall's discovery should not have come as a surprise, even if earlier reports of chimpanzees cracking nuts with stones had been forgotten, because psychologists had studied chimpanzees and capuchin monkeys spontaneously using objects as tools in captive settings for decades. Wolfgang Kurler and the Yerkes studied captive apes and um, um, Heinrich Kluver studied capuchin monkeys. Studies with captive non-human primates using tools have continued since then, and we've learned much from from them. I'm going to focus, however, on what we know about non-human primates' behavior in natural settings, in keeping with the situations of human ancestors and contemporary humans whose behavior and brains we're hoping to understand. I'm going to focus on those species... Uh, that have been found to use hand tools regularly in their daily lives as humans did and do. So what can we learn from non-human primates' use of hand tools that helps us understand human origins and our contemporary minds and behavior? First, we can learn what is shared, and we can deduce what is not shared, and then we can work to explain the differences. So let's start with the forms of tooling that we find in non-human primates. And I use the word tooling to mean using an object as a tool. Four genera of non-human primates regularly use hand tools, and in each genus, one species has been most studied in this regard, and I'm going to focus on those species. Two species are apes, two are monkeys, two are Asian, one African, one South American. Thus, they come from across the regions in which non-human primates live. They most frequently use hand tools to hammer, puncture, scrape, probe, rake, and in a few other ways. In these forms of tooling, non-human primates perform simple actions. They produce a change in a substrate or a fixed object with one object, a stick or a stone. Here a chimpanzee punctures the soil to get at an underground termite nest. A macaque hammers an oyster with a stone. And a capuchin monkey is scraping up scraping the sand away from a tuber in the ground. They use a hand tool to alter one loose object, to pound a loose gastropod, in this case, by a macaque, or a chimpanzee or capuchin monkey cracking nuts. They generate novel combinations of actions with objects, some of which plausibly could lead to achieving their goal, but often they don't. This young monkey stacked a nut on a small stone on a larger piece of stone and then prepared to strike it and with his third stone. And that didn't work. 
They use simple toolkits. That is, they use two or more items in a sequence for different sub-goals. On the left, a chimpanzee uses a stout branch to break into a bee's nest. And then on the right, she uses a smaller branch to dip for honey and larvae. They select and transport materials, taken as evidence of planning. That was a capuchin monkey, transporting a stone bipedally several meters to an anvil. Here we see, I think I have to click again, another monkey. He's selecting a heavier stone, which in this case is the smaller one. He taps and handles both stones before selecting the heavier stone to carry to the anvil. This is Elisabetta Wieselbergi narrating in Italian. The lighter one, although larger, was too light to be an effective hammer. We manufactured the stones for that experiment. They modify materials and manufacture tools by subtraction, breaking sticks from branches and twigs from sticks, for example. Here we see a chimpanzee fishing for termites using a stem that she collected from a plant, like those shown on the left, which she then modified by chewing on it to have a brush tip. The lower right image shows how the brush tip helps to collect the termites. They use skilled movements to achieve a good mechanical effect with the tool. By skill, I mean achieving the goal with minimal effort and maximal effectiveness. This capuchin monkey can crack nuts far more skillfully than I can using the same stone, and I can tell you I've tried many times. He does it in three strikes, and he he was cracking a nut like this. The monkey weighs three and a half kilos. This is a big stone, or a big nut for a monkey that size. They learn to use stone tools with others and from artifacts left by others. In other words, they have technical traditions. They learn these skills over a very lengthy period. Chimpanzees learn to crack nuts over about a three-year period, progressing from actions with one object to combining objects, and then percussing, and finally cracking nuts when they're about three years old. Burmese macaques learn to harvest oysters and crack loose gastropods in a similar time frame, with somewhat different order of appearance of the elements compared to chimpanzees. Bearded capuchins similarly begin handling objects soon after birth, but do not begin to place an object on a surface and then work on it with another object until they're around two years old, and they begin to crack nuts some months or even years after that. All in all, the developmental timelines are quite similar across these species. Orangutans may develop their tool-using skills more slowly, but we really don't have good ontogenetic data on this point yet. These primates, like humans, forage extractively. That is, they collect food that is hidden in wood or soil or protected by tough shells or rinds or by thorns or irritating latex. Some, some way they're defended. We see on the right a capuchin monkey extracting a plant underground storage organ from the soil. He's not using a tool for that. He's digging in the sand with his hands. They use tools to, abundant, to process abundant, high-quality foods. Here we see palm nuts eaten by capuchin monkeys on the left, kula nuts, also called African walnuts, eaten by chimpanzees in the center, and a diverse array of gastropods and marine organisms cracked by the macaques. These are all abundant foods. They're nutritious, good, high-quality foods. They all spend a lot of time on the ground and forage on the ground, except for orangutans, 
And this uh, is an interesting point and one that um, Muhlman and Wojcik have commented on. In if you're looking for a book about tool use in non-human primates, this is actually about not just primates, uh, but it's called Tool Use in, tool use in Animals, edited by um, Sants, Call, and Bush. It's a good book if you're interested in this topic. The shared features I have mentioned and some others that I list here, bimanual actions, complementary bimanual actions, modulating movements, hierarchical organization of action sequence, preparatory movements with a tool before use, and, and others that I don't have time to talk about. These are all things that reveal shared perceptual motor, cognitive, and social foundations for tooling in primates. And yet, non-human primates do not use tools as in, shown in these pictures that are very common actions for humans. They don't do it spontaneously, and to my knowledge, they don't do it with training either. Why not? They don't seem to be limited by gross sensory or motor characteristics. Here we see a drawing of a chimpanzee delicately and dexterously handling a plant stem and holding a rigid stick. These were drawings taken from video. Instead, they differ from humans in more subtle ways. Humans perceive spatial relations between objects differently. For example, from two years of age, we can align the axes of objects and surfaces to each other accurately and easily, as when you insert a key into a keyhole. And non-human primates do not, as far as we now know. Non-human primates align points. They can align a probe to a hole. That's a point alignment. But they don't align axes to each other. So here we see a bar, a cross, and a kind of tomahawk shape, and a, and a corresponding cutout in a tray. And two-year-old children can put in the bar and the cross, and three- and four-year-old children can manage that tomahawk shape. And non-human primates, with a lot of effort, can get the bar in, and they actually can get them all in if you just give them long enough, but they don't just pick it up, rotate it, position it, and place it in. They do it by smearing the thing around on the surface, and eventually they get it in. It's a very different strategy. Non-human primates move one object at a time, managing a few degrees of freedom. Humans manage two objects concurrently, and sometimes more, as when knitting. I think knitting is an underappreciated skill. <laughs> in sum, humans can coordinate movements in space more precisely, especially movements organized with respect to the target object or objects than non-human primates. Humans can manage a greater number of relations between objects concurrently, than non-human primates. Humans also have more elaborate social cognition, and this plays out in many ways. Without teaching and without intentional scaffolding, non-human primates learn their technical skills less efficiently than do humans. Turning to the question that Drs. White and Churchland asked us to address, how did the tools, use of tools contribute to the origins of our species' brains and cognition I would say as a primatologist that I want to turn the question around. I want to know what features of ancestral hominins and their ecological and their social circumstances set the stage for humans to expand into a specialized foraging niche that increasingly relied on using tools. My suggestion is 
that natural selection for perceptual and behavioral attributes associated with extractive foraging, particularly the perception and management of spatial relations among objects and the precise control of the movements of the body plus object system, slowly but eventually enabled ancestral humans to expand into a specialized foraging niche that relied on using tools. Humans are obligate tool users. No non-human primate is an obligate tool user. In other words, I suggest that the key evolutionary shifts that got humans started down this path were perceptual and action components associated with handling and moving objects during foraging. These shifts enable humans to use tools far more flexibly than can non-human primates. Of course, other aspects of human biology that are associated with tool use were co-evolving, including morphology, social cognition, attentional control, memory strategies, and so on. So our next speaker is going to tell us something more about how these features played out in human evolution. I want to take just a few moments, the remaining time that I have, to tell you a bit more about the work that I do in Brazil and the monkeys that I think are so interesting to study. And I do this work collaboratively with Patricia Itzar and Elisabetta Wieselbergi, who are shown in that photo. These monkeys collect palm nuts. They take them to anvils, and they use stone hammers to crack them at those anvils. You've seen a few clips of what these monkeys do. This one uh, shows a female um, positioning the nut very carefully and working on that stone. And this is completely characteristic. Uh, what she's doing looks, it's not chaotic or random. There's actually quite a bit of method there. In the end, she arrives at the nut in a very stable position on the anvil, and then she whacks it, even though it does sometimes fly off the anvil. That's just one of the hazards of the occupation. <laughs> and, uh, very slow motion. There's really beauty in that action. I think these monkeys are Hercules with a tail. <laughs> Capuchins have all the characteristics we associate with tool use in primates. They're quite terrestrial. They use bipedal stance occasionally on the ground to look around. They transport things bipedally. They're extractive foragers. They percuss objects during foraging even when they're not using tools. They're tolerant to young monkeys near them while they're foraging. They're generally social cohesive. Their habitat has features that make the mon monkeys nutcracking likely and of use to them. Nuts and anvil sites are abundant. The hammerstones are not. Those are the restricted resources. The nuts and the larvae that they often contain are both preferred and nutritious and they're available all year long. So it, it makes a lot of sense if you're a capuchin monkey living in this area to crack nuts. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here today to talk about a topic that's uh, very near and dear to my heart, which is the, uh, the role of technology in human evolution. Uh, in fact, if you go back about uh, 60 years, it was uh, pretty much... Uh, widespread viewpoint that uh, technology and toolmaking was absolutely central to human evolution, uh, and in fact perhaps uh, definitive of our species. Uh, but 
this was graphically represented in a uh, film in 1968, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, um, which depicts this turning point, a critical turning point in human evolution, uh, when this Australopithecine, uh, male of course, uh, realizes that he can use a bone as a club and then proceeds to slaughter his rivals with it. Uh, from then, our future was assured and virtually inevitable. In triumph, he uh, tosses the stone up in the air, uh, spins around, and then on the way back down, it uh, very smoothly, at least in 1960s cinematography, uh, turns into a, uh, a spaceship. Uh, so you get, you get the picture, right? Uh, but already by the time that this, uh, this film had come out, and you saw this quote in the last presentation, uh, this vision of, of man, the toolmaker, had started to unravel a bit, uh, as uh, uh, Louis Leakey famously quipped, you know, now we must redefine man, refine tool, or accept chimpanzees as, as human. And in fact, uh, now we know it's not just the chimpanzees, it's not even just the primates. If you're willing to accept uh, kind of covering yourself with a coconut as tool use, it goes into mollusks even using tools. Uh, and as archaeologists, uh, we also know that the earliest appearance of flakestone tools was not really a transformative uh, breakthrough that we, we thought. Uh, the first stone tools appear around 3.3 million years, and then nothing happens. Uh, in fact, uh, the graph should probably look more like this. You have a little bit of a, uh, a flash uh, or a flash in the pan. Uh, let me get the laser pointer up here. At 3.3 uh, million years ago, then a whole lot and nothing uh, until about 2.6, where you have some low-intensity mucking about in toolmaking, but it doesn't really take off until after 2 million years. So maybe early stone tools really aren't that much of a big deal after all. But obviously, I don't believe that. Uh, and in fact, you could say that the, uh, the, the termite probe here is a tool, the phone is a tool, uh, you know, they're the same thing qualitatively, but uh, quantitatively there's a massive difference in complexity that we need to uh, explain. So take this, this famous scene from uh, the Shibuya crossing in uh, Tokyo. Uh, arguably, there's not a single natural thing in sight here. Uh, even the people, even the bodies, the human bodies, have been transformed by this, this long engagement with technology. Uh, the reduction in the size of our jaws and teeth and our gut from external processing of food, uh, the uh, adaptations to the hands and arm for dexterous manipulation, and, of course, the very large, energy-hungry brain. But the other thing to notice in this picture is how many people there are. Uh, despite this really expensive brain, the very long development, the heavy investment that children require, if you may be familiar with, uh, there's more than 7 billion of us on the planet. Uh, compared to the other apes, human mothers have the shortest interbirth interval and the highest to total fertility rate, despite having these really expensive offspring. So basically, they should not be able to afford to do this. Human women should not be able to afford this rate of reproduction. So how do they do it is they do receive uh, assistance from others. This could be uh, fathers, could be siblings, could be grandparents, other members of the community, and a strategy that's been called a human biocultural reproductive uh, strategy. But obviously, for these other individuals to provide uh, uh, assistance to, to human mothers, they have to produce more than just what they themselves need to survive. Right? And throughout the life course, chimpanzees pretty much 
produce what they consume and consume what they produce, except for maybe a little bit of nursing right here at the outset, uh, tracks closely. Now, humans, we have this long, very expensive uh, childhood in which we are producing uh, much less than we're consuming, um, but eventually uh, we're able to start producing a surplus, and the reason for this is what I call technology, these culturally inherited, passed on uh, techniques for exploiting the environment. Right? So this describes a human technological niche. Uh, what you've got here is a powerful biocultural feedback cycle where uh, technology can improve, increase production, uh, which provides the resources for sharing, which can subsidize uh, long, expensive uh, development and population growth, which makes it possible to grow and educate a large brain, which makes it possible to have further technological innovations, and so forth. Uh, now, as I articulated there, this suggests a very powerful, as I said, feedback or even a runaway feedback curve. So maybe we're back to the you know, guy tossing the bone in the air after all. Once it gets started, how do you stop it? Um, but in fact, not every technological innovation is necessarily going to be a game changer that is going to increase uh, your production. Uh, increase in intelligence may lead to uh, greater refinement of, of toolmaking rather than some kind of innovation. And so models that take the interaction between some of these variables into account, well, they can produce this exponential curve, but they can also produce a series of, uh, of steps and plateaus that's a lot more like what the are archaeological record actually looks like. Right? So unfortunately, things are complicated. Life is complicated, and we have to turn to the actual archaeological record and try to figure out what happened, when, where, and why. Uh, so why didn't the earliest stone tools take off? Why wasn't this a game changer? Right? So if you've ever loosened or tightened a screw using the knife you happen to have in your hand rather than digging through your your tool chest to get a proper screwdriver, or if you've weighed the uh, costs and benefits of updating your operating system, uh, you know that the technology it comes with both costs and benefits. Uh, so, for instance, uh, you know, technology might increase uh, your rate of return, um, but before you can start employing it, you may have to gather raw materials, you may have to actually produce and maintain the tools, and critically, you've got to learn how to do all of these things before you can even start harvesting from the environment. And in some circumstances, you'd be better off to just start right in with a simpler technology rather than wasting all of this time. I'm going to focus, in, well, actually, the, the argument here, to make it explicit, is that this could help to explain some of the patterning that we see in the archaeological record. Uh, and I'm going to focus in particular on skill learning, the cost of skill learning, because this is something that evolutionarily, brain evolution, could mitigate the costs of skill, skill evolution, of skill learning, I'm sorry, uh, and also changes in our uh, donation of time and energy in the form of teaching. So sharing our time and energy to teach others could, could alter the uh, costs and benefits of, of skill investment in skill learning. All right, so... Chimpanzees, apes, can make stone tools, uh, but they don't do it in the wild. Uh, and in fact, it takes them a really long time uh, to learn how to do it and how to make tools that are frankly not very good. Uh, so it's really no wonder that they don't bother to do this. Now, part of the reason, uh, and Dr. Fergazi talked about some of this, part of the reason is probably has to do with their hands. So they have these very uh, long fingers that make some of the uh, uh, manipulations of stones that we do for stone tool making difficult. Um, but I think that there's more to it uh, than just the hands. All right, so, so for reference, here is a uh, skilled modern human 
making uh, simple stone flakes. Uh, these pieces, these sharp pieces of rock that are coming off are surprisingly effective knives. Actually, you can use them to butcher a wide range of, of animals. And what's required here is to identify the appropriate geometry on the stone um, to very dexterously manipulate and support it with the left hand while pr- delivering very forceful and accurate uh, strikes with the right hand. Now, this is not rocket science, but it does require some pretty sophisticated spatial relationships as well as some, some highly uh, uh, skilled manual movements and control. Right, so I don't think it's just the fingers, um, but I think it's also the brain that's involved here uh, that makes this easier for humans than it is for uh, uh, chimpanzees. And in fact, humans have an uh, expanded uh, neural system, a dorsal stream for relating things like spatial relations, body positions, object identification, and kinematics to technological goals uh, that I think makes it easier and less costly for humans to learn these kinds of, of skills. And in fact, this is exactly and if you do a uh, functional uh, imaging of the systems that are activated during simple stone tool making, uh, this is the same network of, of, syst- of structures that you see uh, involved there. All right, so if we turn to uh, Australopithecines um, with their small brains, with uh, large jaws and teeth and, and guts uh, adapted for process, for Uh, digesting unprocessed kinds of foods with hands and arms that may or may not have been up to the task, it's probably the case that stone tool making just wasn't really worth it for them as an investment. Uh, The exception then that proves the rule here uh, is the Lamequian stone tool making, which actually is produced using less demanding techniques like uh, indirect percussion, against a rock, a stationary rock like this, um, or bipolar shattering on an anvil. And you can see that the, uh, uh, the experimenter here actually has uh, uh, their fingers bound together to make this point. It requires a lot less uh, demanding kind of manipulation. Uh, so less investment in skill, but perhaps also less payoff in terms of the effectiveness of the technology. Uh, by 2.5, 2.6 million years ago, we do have evidence of uh, more uh, skill-intensive, more dexterous uh, freehand flaking, what we, like what we saw in that uh, video from sites, uh, the site of Gona uh, in Ethiopia, where I work with uh, Dr. Seleshi Sema. Uh, and you can see some of these tools are made very finely, very small, some very delicate flaking and, and precise gestures involved there, and arguably then could be a, a more efficient technology that might have a a better payoff. We don't really know very much about early Homo that was around at this time, except the teeth maybe are a little bit smaller. We could speculate the brain's also bigger, but we don't know. Uh, Australopithecines also around at the right time and place to make these tools don't show any obvious adaptations for tool making. Uh, and the, the, uh, the sites on the landscape remain rare and somewhat ephemeral, and so this is maybe sometimes worth it. And it's only after about two million years ago that we see what I'm going to loosely call uh, habitual tool making, uh, habitual old one tool making. I think uh, John Shea, who we'll hear about from, has a different definition of, of habitual. But I just mean in the sense that they're doing it much more frequently. The sites are larger. They are denser. They occur across more of the continent. It persists. Uh, and this is interesting because there's a, you know, a pretty 
loose, we like to do these correspondences between this, this shift in the technology and the appearance of evidence of, of larger brain and body size. And it's pretty rapidly uh, after that, by 1.8, 1.7 million years ago, with, that we see the invention of an entirely new technology, this we call the early Acheulean, where for the first time tools are being made um, to an intentional shape, uh, imposing a point, these things we call picks and uh, hand axes, which are often made by striking a really large flake off of a boulder core, which requires a whole different technique and different kind of manual skill, and seems to go hand in hand uh, with the appearance of, of Homo erectus uh, in the loose sense um, with larger brains and, and body size. This then appears to be a fairly stable adaptation. Uh, with or without hand axe, uh, hominids are able to uh, inhabit diverse environments throughout Eurasia, uh, even up to the edge of the, of the boreal zone here. Uh, and in places where hand axes were made consistently, like throughout this period, like in East Africa, there is some evidence of incremental refinement. But overall, things seem to be pretty stable, if variable, stable but variable for about a million years or more. Uh, and it's by then about half a million years ago that we see clear evidence that we've entered into another sort of period of abrupt change indicated um, by uh, rapid encephalization, um, by the expansion into new habitats, and by the appearance of new forms of, of technology as well. And one of these that I've studied in uh, some detail are late Acheulean-style hand axes, uh, like this one from uh, Boxgrove in the UK. Uh, and in contrast to earlier uh, tools, earlier hand axes, these are very nicely shaped and especially made very flat and thin in, in, in cross-section. And I emphasize that because that's actually a very difficult thing to achieve with a rock by hitting it with another rock. Uh, you start off with a big nodule, irregularly shaped, and you have to flatten that thing down. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you can strike flakes that travel more than halfway across the surface of the rock. And to enable that kind of fracture, you really need to be able to delicately adjust the angle, the placement, and the bevel of the edge relative to the midline in order to ensure that the flaky strike is going to actually travel some distance along the core face. Uh, archaeologists call this striking platform preparation. And this entire technology is a very demanding one. So in order to find out a little bit more about exactly what goes into learning how to do this, uh, we recently ran an, ran an experiment uh, training modern people to make these kinds of stone tools about 20 people. Um, they received close to 100 hours of training, each from an expert stone toolmaker, uh, Dr. Nada Krisha, their products, and we, we've, we've collected all kinds of information about these people and their behavior. Their lithic products I'll talk about, the actual tools they made, have been analyzed by uh, Dr. Justin Pargeter uh, in my lab as well. He's my current postdoc. Uh, and what we found is a classic power learning curve uh, in which Early progress is rapid, uh, but then it asymptotes off to, a, to pretty much a plateau, diminishing returns from practice. Uh, you may be familiar with this kind of effect in sports or anything like that. It's found across a wide range of different skills. Um, Things being as they are in, in life, uh, although we tried to control training time, there was some variability in how often people were able to make it into the lab for training sessions, and we found that not only is it the total amount of practice that you've racked up, but it's actually the, the density, the frequency and intensity of your practice that helps to determine individual differences in the progress of skill learning. 
I want to point out here that this scale is actually a five-point scale, so the top is not even being shown on the graph because nobody even got close to it in 90 hours. Uh, We could extrapolate from individual learning curves. The people in our study we expect would have taken anywhere from 121 hours to over 400 hours to achieve mastery comparable to what we see at Boxgrove in this kind of toolmaking. This is a very substantial uh, investment of time, especially considering that we've given these people everything. They don't have to gather their tools, don't have to make their equipment. It's all right there for them. And we're still talking several hundred hours of dedicated practice. And this, to us, begins to suggest uh, that we may be starting to see some of the kinds of support that modern humans provide for the transmission of complex technical skills, Uh, everything ranging from intentional demonstration, perhaps explicit teaching, certainly uh, social support, coaching, scaffolding, and encouragement. So the social context is a very important part of what's evolving here in the technological niche. Uh, The other thing, of course, is that learning complex skills does require complex uh, cognition. And during this initial, uh, you know, jump in performance here, we found that individual differences in how rapidly you kind of learned this skill were related to your performance on a classic uh, neuropsychological test of... uh, Uh, set shifting. Basically, you have to match this card to one of these. You can match either on shape or color or number. Uh, And your ability to do that, they keep changing the rules. Your ability to recognize when a rule is changed is your set shifting ability. And if you temporarily uh, mess with the part of the brain that controls this in the right inferior frontal gyrus with a magnetic pulse, it slows people down in being able to put together complex action sequences. Uh, Not coincidentally, this very same part of the brain is what we consistently find to be active in studies Uh, uh, functional imaging studies of people making stone tools. It also experiences changes in white matter connectivity during training. In fact, these changes are paralleled by species differences between uh, humans and chimpanzees, in particularly the right hemisphere, inferior frontal gyrus. So we can say that evolutionary changes to this system in humans parallel the effects of toolmaking training. The remaining question is, you know, whether this is genetic adaptation to toolmaking ability or whether it's uh, the developmental context of growing up in a technological niche or some combination of those two, which is obviously the most, the most likely thing. Anyway, it's going to be complicated, um, but hopefully um, by continued study of the archaeological record and focused experimentation, we can begin to sort out some of these details of the very extended and multi-stage process uh, through which the modern human technological niche evolved. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.